0: Part Twenty of the Chronicles of Crime, Part One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Twenty, Frederick Caulfield, executed for murder. The following is a remarkable instance, if it be true, of a dream occasioning the discovery of a murder. Adam Rogers, a creditable man who kept a public house at Portlaw a small village nine or ten miles from Waterford, in Ireland, dreamed one night that he saw two men at a particular green spot on an adjacent mountain, one of them a sickly-looking man, the other remarkably strong and large. Then he fancied that he saw the little man murder the other, and awoke in great agitation. The circumstances of the dream were so distinct and forcible that he continued much affected by them, and on the next morning he was extremely startled, at seeing two strangers enter his house, about eleven o'clock in the forenoon, who resembled precisely the two men that he fancied he had seen. After the strangers had taken some refreshment, and were about to depart, in order to prosecute their journey, Rogers earnestly endeavoured to dissuade the little man from quitting his house, and going on with his fellow traveller, and he assured him that, if he would remain with him that day, he would himself accompany him to Carrick the next morning, that being the town to which they were proceeding. He was unwilling and ashamed to tell the cause of his being so solicitous to separate him from his companion, but as he observed that Hickey, which was the name of the little man, seemed to be quiet and gentle in his deportment, and had money about him, and that the other had a ferocious bad countenance, he dreaded that something fatal would happen, and wished, at all events, to keep them asunder. The humane precautions which he took, however, proved ineffectual. For Caulfield, such was the other's name, prevailed upon Hickey to continue with him on their way to Carrick, declaring that as they had long travelled together they should not part, but should remain together until he should see Hickey safely arrive at the habitation of his friends. They accordingly set out together, and in about an hour after they left Portlaw, in a lonely part of the mountains, just near the place observed by Rogers in his dream, Caulfield took the opportunity of murdering his companion.' It appeared afterwards, from his own account of the horrid transaction, that as they were getting over the ditch, he struck Hickey on the back part of his head with a stone, and when he fell down into the trench in consequence of the blow, Caulfield gave him several stabs with a knife, and cut his throat so deeply that the head was almost severed from the body. He then rifled Hickey's pockets of all the money in them, took part of his clothes and everything else of value about him, and afterwards proceeded on his way to Carrick. He had not been long gone when the body, still warm, was discovered by some labourers who were returning to their work from dinner. The report of the murder soon reached Portlaw, and Rogers and his wife went to the place and instantly knew the body of him whom they had in vain endeavoured to dissuade from going on with his treacherous companion. They at once declared their suspicions that the murder was perpetrated by the fellow traveller of the deceased, and an immediate search was made, and Caulfield was apprehended at Waterford on the second day after. He was brought to trial at the ensuing assizes, and convicted of the fact. After sentence the prisoner confessed that he had been guilty of the murder, and stated that he had accompanied Hickey home from the West Indies, and that observing that he had money in his possession, he had long contemplated the deed which he afterwards effected, but was unable to meet with a good opportunity until their arrival at the spot alluded to. He was executed at Waterford in the year 1751. William Parsons, Esquire, executed for returning from transportation. The unhappy subject of this narrative was the eldest son of Sir William Parsons, Baronet, of the county of Nottingham, and was born in London in the year seventeen seventeen. He was placed under the care of a pious and learned divine at Pepper Harrow in Surrey, where he received the first rudiments of education. In a little more than three years, he was removed to Eton College where it was intended that he should qualify himself for one of the universities. But his misconduct prevented his friends from carrying out their intentions in this respect, for having been detected in various acts of petty pilfering, he was dismissed from the school, and sent home to his father. His disposition was now found to be of so unpromising a character, that it was thought advisable to send him to sea, and an appointment was procured for him as midshipman on board a vessel of war lying at Spithead which was immediately about to proceed to Jamaica. Our hero soon obtained the necessary outfit and joined his ship, but some accident detaining her beyond the time when it was expected she would sail, he applied for leave of absence, and went on shore. But having no intention to return, he directed his course towards a small town about ten miles from Portsmouth called Bishop's Waltham, where, by representations of his respectability, he soon ingratiated himself into the favour of the principal inhabitants his figure being pleasing and his manner of address easy and polite he found but little difficulty in recommending himself to the ladies and he became greatly enamoured of a beautiful and accomplished young lady the daughter of a physician of considerable practice and prevailed upon her to promise that she would yield to him her hand in marriage news of the intended alliance coming to the knowledge of his father and of his uncle the latter directly hastened to waltham to prevent a union which would have produced consequences of the worst character to the contracting parties, and having apprised the friends of the young lady with the condition and situation of the intended bridegroom, their consent was withdrawn, and our hero was, with some difficulty, induced to rejoin his ship. Restless, however, in his new employment, he had scarcely reached Jamaica when he determined that he would desert and return to England and the sailing of the Sheerness Man-of-War for that place afforded him an opportunity of carrying his design into execution, of which he lost no time in availing himself. A new effort to obtain the hand of his former love was as unsuccessful as that which he had first made, and his uncle having ascertained the fact of his presence in England, induced him at once to go back to the residence of his father with promises of future amendment. For a time his determination to alter his course of life was obeyed, but soon again launching forth into habits of irregularity, he was dispatched as midshipman on board the Romney for the coast of Newfoundland. On his revisit in England after an absence of some years, he was mortified to learn that the Duchess of Northumberland, to whom he was distantly related, had revoked a will in his favour which she had made, and had bequeathed to his sister the fortune which he knew had been intended for him and now finding himself spurned by his friends, he was soon reduced to a condition of absolute necessity. Through the friendly intervention of a Mr. Bailey, however, he procured an engagement at James Fort on the River Gambia, but here, as in all other situations unfortunate, he contrived to engage himself in a quarrel, in consequence of which he was compelled to return to Europe, a step, however, which he was alone enabled to take by setting at defiance the commands of the Governor aux that he should not quit the colony, and take his passage under an assumed name, on board a homeward-bound trader. Arrived in London he found no friend to whom he could apply for assistance or relief, but at length discovering the residence of his father, he went to him and implored some aid, even if he should not give him any further countenance. Five shillings, and advice to enter a horse regiment as a private, were all that he could obtain, however, and rendered wretched by his miserable condition the grave appeared to be the only resource to which he could look for consolation. But a thought suggested itself in time to prevent his rashly taking away his life, that he should represent himself as his brother, who had recently come into a fortune, and under the pretext that he was entitled to the legacy, he committed frauds upon various tradesmen to a considerable amount. His impudence and his ingenuity were now required to be exerted in order to relieve him from the difficulty in which he was involved in consequence of this proceeding, but his good fortune in throwing him in the way of a young lady of good fortune, to whom he was married, placed in his power the means of retrieving his lost character and his degraded position. The marriage was solemnized on the 10th of February 1740, and the intercession of his friends, to whom he was now with difficulty again reconciled, procured for him an ensigncy in the 34th Regiment of Foot from the Right Honourable Arthur Onslow. He appeared at this time to be desirous of reappearing in that position in society to which his birth entitled him, but, having hired a house in Poland Street, his extravagant mode of living again, in the course of a few years, reduced him to a condition of great distress. He was compelled to sell his commission in order to recruit his shattered finances, and then, in order to meet new demands, he was guilty of various forgeries upon which he procured money to a very large amount. For two years he pursued new plans of iniquity with considerable success, but then being apprehended in the act of putting off a forged draught, he was committed to Maidstone Gaol, and having been convicted at the ensuing assizes, was sentenced to be transported for seven years. In the month of September 1749 he was put on board the Thames transport bound for Maryland, and in the following November he was landed at Annapolis, in that place. He was now guilty of new offences, even more criminal than those which he had before committed, and having first ridden off with a horse belonging to the person to whom he was assigned as a servant, and committed several robberies, he shaped his course to Potomac, from whence he immediately sailed for England. That refuge for the destitute of all classes at this period, the road, was now the only resource left to our hero, and for a time he pursued his new occupation, with infinite determination and proportionate success, but at length having attempted to rob Mr. Fuller, the gentleman by whom he had before been prosecuted, he was recognised by him, and being vigorously attacked, was at length compelled to surrender, and was secured and committed to Newgate. It was necessary to prove no new offence against him at his trial, but all that was required was to identify him as a transported felon who had returned to England, before the termination of the period for which he had been sentenced to be banished, and this being done, he was declared to have forfeited his life to the laws of his country. His distressed father and wife used all their interest to obtain for him a pardon, but in vain. He was an old offender, and judged by no means a fit object for mercy. While Parsons remained in Newgate, his behaviour was such that it could not be determined whether he entertained a proper idea of his dreadful situation— there is indeed but too much reason to fear that the hopes of a reprieve, in which he deceived himself even to the last moments of his life, induced him to neglect the necessary preparation for eternity. His taking leave of his wife afforded a scene extremely affecting. He recommended to her parental protection his only child, and regretted that his misconduct had put it in the power of a censorious world to reflect upon both the mother and son, at the place of execution he joined in the devotional exercises with a fervency of zeal that proved him to be convinced of the necessity of obtaining the pardon of his Creator. William Parsons Esquire suffered at Tyburn on the 11th of February, 1751. William Chandler, Transported for Perjury The scheme laid by this man for the purpose of plunder has scarcely ever been equalled in art and consummate hypocrisy it is to be observed that in the case of every robbery committed the hundred where it happens or the county at large is responsible for the amount of the loss which the injured person in such cases may sustain in chandler's attempt at fraud founded upon this law he implicated three innocent men by whom he pretended to have been robbed and who had his tale ultimately received credit might have lost their lives happily his plot was frustrated and the real offender was brought to justice William Chandler was the only child of Mr. Thomas Chandler, of Woodborough, near Devizes, a gentleman farmer of moderate means. At an early age the youth was articled to Mr. Banks, who was the clerk of the Goldsmiths' Company. But before two years had elapsed, in consequence of frequent disputes which took place, he was transferred to Mr. Hill, a respectable attorney in Clifford's Inn. His clerkship being nearly expired— THE NECESSITY OF PROVIDING HIMSELF WITH THE MEANS OF COMMENCING PRACTICE ON HIS OWN ACCOUNT SUGGESTED ITSELF INTO HIS MIND, AND HE THEREFORE LAID A PLAN TO PROCURE THE POSSESSION OF AS MUCH MONEY AS HE COULD, AND THEN GOING A JOURNEY INTO THE COUNTRY UPON SOME PLAUSIBLE PRETENCE, TO TRUMP UP A STORY OF BEING ROBBED, AND SUE THE HUNDRED FOR THE AMOUNT. UPON REPRESENTATIONS TO HIS FATHER THAT HE HAD A GOOD MATCH IN VIEW, THE OLD MAN GAVE HIM AN ESTATE OF THE VALUE OF FOUR HUNDRED POUNDS and then producing the deeds to his master, together with five hundred pounds which he had obtained by other means, but which he represented that he had received from a rich uncle in Suffolk, he procured from him the advance of five hundred pounds more, in order, as he alleged, that he might take a mortgage upon some property at Enford, within a few miles of his father's house. Mr. Hill demanded some security for his money, and his clerk immediately proposed to give him a mortgage upon his own estate, in order to favour the appearance of the probability of his proceedings, he engaged with a Mrs. Poor, who lived at Enford, in a transaction. Having the mortgage of some land which she owned for its object, and the money having been duly advanced by his employer, he fixed, the 25th of March, 1748, to meet Mrs. Poor, to hand over the money and receive the necessary papers. Early on the 24th, having turned most of his cash into small bills, to the amount of £900, he found, when he came to put these in canvas bags under his garters, where he proposed to carry them for safety, that they made too great a bundle, and therefore he took several of the bills, with some cash, amounting to £440, and exchanged them at the bank for two notes, one of £400 and the other of £40, the first of which, on his way home, he changed in his master's name at Sir Richard Hawes for one note of £200 and two of £100 each. On his reaching the office he told his master that the bank clerks were a little out of humour at the trouble he had already given them, and that he had changed his small notes with a stranger in the bank hall for the notes which he in reality had received at Sir Richard Hawes. Mr. Hill, at Chandler's request, having then written down the numbers and dates of the several bills, and having seen them safely put up, Chandler took leave of him, and about twelve o'clock set out. About four o'clock the same afternoon he reached Harehatch. Hatch, distant thirty miles from London, where he stopped to refresh, and about five, just as he had left his inn, he was, as he said, unfortunately met by three bargemen, on foot, who, after they had robbed him of his watch and money, took him to a pit close by the road, and there stripped him of all his bank-notes, bound his hands and feet, and left him, threatening to return and shoot him if he made the least noise. In this woeful condition, he said, he lay three hours though the pit was so near the road that not a single horse could pass without his hearing. When night came, however, he jumped, bound as he was, near half a mile, all uphill, till, luckily for his purpose, he met one Avery, a simple shepherd who cut the cords, and of whom the first question Chandler asked was, where a constable or tithing man lived? Avery conducted him to Richard Kelly's, the constable's just by, and with him Mr. Chandler left the notices required by the statutes, with the description of the men who robbed him, so exactly, that a person present remembered three such men to have passed by his house about the very time the robbery was said to have been committed, and the mayor of Reading, who was accidentally on the road, had a similar recollection of the bargemen whom he had met near Maidenhead Thicket, between four and five the same day. Chandler then returned to the inn, where he had refreshed, and after telling his deplorable tale, and acquainting his landlord with his intention of suing the hundred, he ordered a good supper and a bowl of punch, and sat down with as little concern as if nothing had happened. Next day he returned to London, acquainted his master with the pretended robbery, and requested his assistance. Mr. Hill gave him the memorandum he had of the numbers, dates, and sums of the notes, and sent him to the bank to stop payment. But instead of that he went to Mr. Tuffley, a silversmith in Cannon Street, bought a silver tankard, and in payment changed one of the notes for a hundred pounds which he had received the day before at Sir Richard Hawes, and on his return to his master told him the bank did no business that day on account of the hurry the city was in with regard to a fire in Cornhill, which had happened the night before. He therefore went again the following morning, and when he came back being asked by Mr. Hill for the paper on which he had taken down the numbers, etc., he said he had left it with the clerks of the bank, who were to stop the notes but that he had taken an exact copy of it. This, however, was false, for he had reserved Mr. Hill's copy, and left another at the bank, in which he had so craftily altered the numbers and dates of the three notes he received at Sir Richard Hawes, amounting to four hundred pounds, as to prevent their being stopped, and Mr. Hill remembering the difference. On the twenty-sixth he inserted a list of his notes, being fifteen in all, with their dates and numbers, in the daily papers, offering a reward of fifty pounds for the recovery of the whole, or in proportion for any part. But on the afternoon of the same day he withdrew his advertisement in all the daily papers, and took his own written copy away at each place. On the twenty-ninth of March he put the notice of the robbery and the description of the robbers in the London Gazette, as the law directs, except that he did not particularise the notes, as he had done in other papers. On the 12th of May following, he made the proper information before a Justice of the Peace, but though Mr. Hill, his master, was with him, and had undertaken to manage the cause for him, yet he made the same omission in his information as in his advertisement in the London Gazette. All things being prepared, on the 18th of July, 1748, Chandler's cause came on at Abingdon before a special jury, and after a hearing of twelve hours, the jury retired and then gave the prosecutor a verdict for nine hundred and seventy pounds subject however to a case reserved for the opinion of the court of common pleas concerning the sufficiency of the description of the bank-notes in the london gazette in the meantime chandler fearing that by what came out upon the trial he should soon be suspected and that he might be arrested obtained a protection from lord willoughby de Broke, and gave out that he was removed into suffolk to reside as he had before pretended with his rich uncle. But in reality he retired to Colchester, where his brother-in-law Humphrey Smart had taken an inn, with whom he entered into co-partnership, and never came publicly to London afterwards. He was, however, obliged to correspond with his master, on account of the point of law which was soon to be argued and therefore to obtain his letters without discovering his place of abode, he ordered them to be directed to Mr. Thomas Chandler at Easton in Suffolk, to be left for him at the Crown at Audley, near Colchester. Mr. Hill having written several letters to Mr. Chandler, pressing him to come to town, as the term drew near, and he evading it by trifling excuses, the former began to suspect him, even before the point of law was determined just before this period twelve of the notes of which mr chandler pretended to have been robbed were all brought to the bank together having been bought october the thirty first seventeen forty eight at amsterdam of one john smith by barnard solomon a broker there and by him transmitted to his son nathan solomon a broker in london upon further inquiry it appeared that john smith who sold the notes stayed but a few days in holland that he was seen in company with a Mr. Casson, a Holland trader, and came over in the packet with him. Mr. Casson was then found, and his description of John Smith answered to the person of Chandler, who was in consequence pressed by letter to come to town and face Casson to remove all suspicion, but he refused. In the interim the point of law was argued before the judges of the common pleas, when their determination was to the following effect, that as Chandler had not inserted the numbers of his notes in the Gazette, nor sworn to them when he made oath before the Justice, the verdict must be set aside and the plaintiff non-suited, without the advantage of a new trial. But now the scene began to open apace. For about this time the very paper which Chandler left when he stopped payment of the notes at the bank was found, and upon its being seen by Mr. Hill he at once saw that he had been deceived, and proceeded to take the necessary steps to secure his apprehension the whole circumstances attending the case were soon traced upon a minute inspection of the bank books as contrasted with those of the banking house of messrs horan & co and about midsummer 1749 mr hill and others set out for colchester with a view of securing the person of the culprit after a fruitless journey however of about 150 miles in search of the fugitive they returned to the very inn at Colchester, which was kept by the object of their search, and then departed for London without gaining any intelligence. Chandler, having seen his pursuers, thought it prudent to decamp, and proceeded to Coventry, where he took a small public house. But being desirous of making some reparation to his late master, he transmitted to him a £150 by letter from Nottingham. By the postmark of his letter he was eventually traced to Coventry, and an indictment for perjury in respect of the information on oath which he gave to the magistrates of the robbery having been found against him he was taken into custody on a judge's warrant and removed to abingdon where on the twenty second of july seventeen fifty he was arraigned on the indictment preferred against him the witnesses being all in attendance the prisoner traversed his trial until the next assizes in pursuance of a right which he possessed but then the facts already detailed having been proved in evidence, he was found guilty, and on the 16th of July, 1751, he was sentenced to be transported for seven years, having first undergone three months' imprisonment in the county jail. End of Part 20